whether it's husbands okay. or you know, sons that are now fathers. Okay. Um, I'd like you to focus on the things that those fathers have done really well, that you can say, when I see these verses, when I see what's going on, what's expected of a father, I can honor them for the things that they're doing here. And if you're a father yourself, you can, you can have some confidence in that I'm following God's word when I do these things. And yes, there's going to be things that we need to work on. I've got lots of things I need to work on in this. Take those, work on them as you can, but, but don't let it be a beat-down day as far as I, there's so much better I can do. To prepare for this, this message today, I talked to my kids a little bit, but a lot of what I got was in a phone call with my father. I gave him a call a few days back, and I said, you know, Dad, what advice do you have for me? You know, what advice do you have for a young father or for me? And he shared a lot of his thoughts, had a really good conversation. You know, when I took it further, I said, what did you learn from your dad? What was, what was it that Grandpa did that made him a good father? And so a lot of the content today, of course, I went back and I said, okay, this seems like really good advice, of course, and you know, it's my dad, so I'm going to listen to him. But what does the Bible say as well? So that's where we're going to go with this. Um, before we get started, let's go ahead and open the word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for being the amazing God that you are, the, the leader, the father, the, the caring person that we all need. Thank you for being there for us, for sending your son for us. Thank you for the fathers that you put in our lives here on earth and, and help us to honor them today and honor you as well. So, the first thing that my dad told me, as I said, what would you say it takes to be a good father, is he, he started laughing, started chuckling, he said, well, the best thing that I can say that I did was found a good wife. Yeah. And saying, you know, having that partner in place was huge. And I've got a quote here. I think it's from uh, Jimmy Carter that's going to be up there in a second. That's our outline for the day. We'll come back to this. Uh, Jimmy Carter, I think it's the next slide. I can start with the Daniel. Oh, here we go. I think a good husband has to depend on having a good wife. Pretty straightforward, but good to see. Uh, another one I got from Daniel Boone. All you need for happiness is a good gun, a good horse, and a good wife. <laughs> I don't have a horse, um, I've got a, a gun that's okay, but I can say I've got a good wife, so I'll take that, yeah. I'll take that. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. In Proverbs 18, 1, it says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. You really can't do it alone. <laughs> we can try, and some of us are put in a spot where, some people are put in a spot where they have to. They have to work at it alone. But having that good partner is so big. When I think of my own physical needs, my own spiritual needs, my own mental needs, emotional financial, all these things that I have, and I think I've got to try to balance that on my own and work on those things on my own. That's a challenge. And then I say, okay, I've got four kids. How am I going to raise them? 
to have those needs met as well. And I don't, I don't see a way to do that without a good helper. Yeah, and she helps with my balance as well. So <laughs> I think that's, that's the power there. And building on that, we can look at teamwork. In Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, there's quite a bit here. I want to focus on 9 and 10. It says, two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. And it goes on, likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. I don't know that we'll go to three with marriage, but <laughs> we get the idea of teamwork, right? Uh, Proverbs 27, 17, this has become one of my favorite, and it probably has to do with the Broncos and their theme, but uh, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. The idea here of teamwork and having that partner is all about synergy. It's the one plus one equals three or four or five. When you truly work with somebody else, you can accomplish so much more than you can independently do on your own. And the real easy example that I can pull from this is when I've had to make a decision for the family and I decided to make that decision on my own. Or when I've had to make a decision for the family and I didn't decide and so Sarah had to make the decision on her own. And how those decisions go compared to when we actually work with each other and talk about those problems together and, and share what we're thinking, share our concerns, share our, our thoughts. When we dialogue actually and work on those things, the solutions end up so much better than anything we can accomplish on our own. Having a great partner means accepting that she is a gift from God. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I want to point out that the church in this case is not perfect. Neither are we as husbands, neither are our wives. That imperfect person that you may have by your side she is God's perfect gift for you. Thank God for her daily or hourly or minutely, but not secondly. There we go. <laughs> Dwell on the gifts that she brings to your marriage and watch how your marriage and parenting transform. Uh, I, I modified this a bit, but there was a quote I was looking at on Pinterest of something that you might be able to say to your spouse. We're a team. Whatever you lack, I got you. We will balance each other out. Minor setback, guests will make a major comeback. Bad day, better tomorrow. You need support, I'll be your backbone. I'll keep you motivated and at the top. I see the good in you that you don't see in yourself and I'm cheering it out of you. You are God's daughter. And the power and goodness that you bring makes me and the rest of the world a better place. You got me. I got you. God's got us. When you have that partner, 
you need to honor them as a gift from God. And of course, spoil your spouse, not your children. Well, Sarah liked that idea when I saw that quote. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. I think it really is a great idea. The second major point I wanted to hit on today, my dad talked to me about consistency, and then he talked about honesty, and then he talked about integrity. I'm like, yeah, those, those all go together. Honesty, consistency, consistency, and integrity. And the quote here from C.S. Lewis, integrity is doing the right thing even when no one was watching. Uh, I didn't know it was C.S. Lewis, but I got that one pounded into me over the course of 13 weeks in boot camp. We heard that over and over again. Integrity is doing the right thing even when no one is watching. Being consistent. We're going to see a little bit of what God's consistency might look like. In Philippians 1.27, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. And 1 Thessalonians 4.11 and 12, And make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. Work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so you will not be dependent on anybody. One of the things that I can say from my childhood that my dad did lead out, and it just seemed like this is normal to me, was that we, we did nightly devotions. It was every night, and it was weird if for some reason we couldn't do that, if we didn't come together as a family before bed. And I, I'm happy to say that I've been able to pass that on with my family. And I credit my dad for getting that habit going. And now my kids, uh, for the most part, they're upset when we, we miss out or aren't we going to do devotions. Family home evening. Um, I did grow up uh, Mormon, so that's not something that we have here. But it was something that was set as a tradition that every Monday night, my family hung out together. You didn't make plans on Monday night. You didn't do anything else. It was this time of family. And it was goofy. It was dumb. We played charades. We did. We, I remember making obstacle courses in the backyard. And, you know, we had a wide range of ages there. <laughs> I think my brother was just about out of the house when my youngest sister was born. But we spent that time together. And I credit a lot of that family focus in the relationships that we have today as a family, as brothers and sisters. It's that consistency. And of course, we prayed, we talked about God, we attended church regularly. All of those priorities were in place as this is a consistent regular habit that we need to have. We need to be honest. Proverbs twelve twenty two says, The Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. 2 Corinthians 8.21 For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of man. And Proverbs 24.26 An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. I did get the lips up there, good. So we know lying, honesty, this is a pretty straightforward one, but... I don't know if we always understand how powerful honesty is. When one of the things that I've, I've studied, I've experienced, I've looked at, um, and I usually share at work, is a discussion 
on trust. And how do we trust each other? And how do we work together? How do we function as a family, as a, as a team, as a, you know, parents and kids? And one of the first things we need to throw out is this idea of trust based on transactions. I trust you when you do what you say you're going to do. When you fail, I no longer trust you. It's going to take a while for you to earn that back. Personally, I say keep striving to do what you're going to say to do. The Bible says what your yes be yes, your no be no, and all of that. But when we hold others to that standard of this is whether I trust you or not, we're dooming ourselves for failure. Because you will be let down over and over and over again. Where I want to change that is to more of an honesty. Our vulnerability-based trust. When I am honest with you, when you can count on me to tell you the truth, good or bad, I will come to you and let you know, I got this wrong. I messed this up. I was unable to do what I said I could do. That builds a trust that you can have as a foundation for your relationships with your family. Have integrity is the final point on this one. First Peter 1 Peter 1.13-15 Therefore with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy on all you do. Um, I, I want to stop on this verse really quickly. That being holy, that he called you to be holy. Um, the consistency that comes with honesty builds the character of integrity. And I do see my father as somebody with integrity. But that consistency and character, it's, it's funny as I look back on that, and in the conversation, it was one of those light bulb moments, wow, I had never saw this in my dad before, was that it was work. I always assume that it's your character or it's not your character. And that was my dad's character, and so it was easy for him. But we see, be holy in all you do. This is an active work. This is something that has to be worked on all the time. And that building of character is going to give you the rewards of better relationships, of, of having that integrity and that character that people rely on. Proverbs 10.9 says, Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but whoever takes crooked paths will be found out. Children feel more secure when they can trust the actions and reactions they should expect. When a child sins, they should know how their parents will react. If they don't know, it almost becomes an excuse to sin because they want to find out. They want to know, what's dad going to do? How's he going to react this time? When you have that consistency, they're still going to fail. But they know what you're going to do. They know this is what dad's going to do. This is what dad's going to say. This is how I can expect him to be, be that consistency and that integrity. The third thing that my dad talked to me about, he said, in matters of judgment, see the whole story. Take a step back. And we got Calvin and Hobbes' comic there. Do not argue with an idiot. He will drag you down to his level and beat you with experience. <laughs> This idea of matters of judgment, this is a, a parent's role, right? How many times do you need to intervene and make a judgment call and decide for your family, for your kids? 
When your child is hurt, angry, or sad, James 1, 19 through 20. And dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Become, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Staying on this verse for a moment. This is, it's maybe a flaw in me. Maybe it's a, a flaw that's common. When I see the emotion come out of one of my kids because they are hurt, because they are angry, because they are sad, I can very quickly make a judgment call as to what I think, who I think is right or wrong in the situation. And for me, it tends to be if they are hurt and crying, and it's a true cry, it's not the fake cry. I assume they're innocent, that this is somebody else's fault that they're hurt. When they come to me and they're angry and they're yelling and they're blaming, I'm really quick to think, now. It's the other person's fault. Or yeah, it's your fault. You know, you're, you got yourself into this mess if you're so mad. And, and that's probably just me. I don't know. But I think that's, that's a danger. It's something that needs to be worked on. When I quickly assume their guilt, I don't allow myself the chance to be slow to listen. Matthew 18, 15, 17. We'll recognize this passage as one on accountability. We looked at this a Wednesday night a little while back. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church, and if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I think there's principles here that we can take, even outside of the church, to the family, and say... You know, maybe the point of two or three witnesses isn't to be able to really establish your ground, but rather to get the truth out. When I look at parenting and my kids arguing and bickering when they, when they do, um, I really want them to figure it out on their own most of the time. I'd like to say that when they have a disagreement with each other, that they're going to resolve it themselves and I never need to know about it. That's taking it to your brother, taking it to your sister, pointing it out, resolving it. But if they can't, and they come to parents, now you have multiple witnesses that you can get the accounts from, you can take in, you can listen, and you can say, all right, now as I hear the whole story and I get the facts and the details out, I could make a good judgment call. And then we can, we can make a better decision than we would just on the, on the quick and the emotions. Um, I got a, a story here, um, and Sarah knows the story better than me. But we had we had purchased a bag of apples at Sam's, and we got it home, and it, it may have been a day later or so, or even that same day that we couldn't find it. Like, where did those apples go? This is weird. You know, big bag of apples from Sam's, and a um, little later, uh, found one of uh, found an apple with a couple bites taken out of it just sitting out. It's like, okay, that's not all right. You know, bring the kids in, don't eat partial apples, you know, <laughs> ask before you take one, all that kind of stuff. And then we found another apple, and then another one, and another one, and I think it was uh, a little later that we found the, the mother load of all these apples with little bites taken out of them. Uh, this, was, this was several years ago, actually, that this happened. And recently, uh, one of my children confessed. Um, uh, she will remain. remain. 
badass. She told her little brother to take the fall for that. And he did. And he said, oh, it was my fault. I did this. And now we can laugh about it, being that it was so long ago. But this is that point, right? As a parent, you got to investigate. you got to dig. you got to find out everything that you can about the truth. Because uh, kids will do stuff like that. <laughs> um, when your child has a dispute with authority, Romans 13, 1 and 2, we should, uh, most of us know this one. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. This is a lesson of respect and honor. It's more powerful than the assumed lesson of right and wrong. Right and wrong is often fueled by emotion, emotional indignation. And it must be tempered with delayed satisfaction. Allowing judgment to come from God so you can learn to love the unlovable. Uh, a small example of um, respect for authority doesn't always have to be government. Um, my, my children, each of them, will tell you that when you're in the light bulb aisle of a store, you do not touch light bulbs. <laughs> I know at least one, if not two, have broken light bulbs. And we've said, this is not our property. You've damaged someone else's property. You need to go talk to a cashier or a clerk or somebody and let them know what you did. And that respect for authority to say, we've got to speak up, we've got to say something. The other one is uh, when shopping at Sprouts, you don't take samples <laughs> and we'll eat those. That's stealing something. And, and I mean, it's, it's small amounts, but it's that respect for authority to say, this isn't your own. You need to respect the authority and the property of others. When your child has a dispute with your, ch your spouse, in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, we hear, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise, so that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy life, long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I'd like to get rid of that fourth verse there, but it's there. So, when, by making our spouse and sometimes ourselves a priority, we teach our children how to respect others and themselves. What happens when you side with your kids over your spouse? What I believe happens is you prevent them from obeying this commandment. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And you say... I'm going to side with my kid over the parent. I am keeping blessings from them for honoring their parent. And I'm exasperating them. The stability and consistency a child is secretly yearning for is fractured quickly by a parent who chooses the child over their spouse. Similar to authority, but more powerful because of what it says about your lack of faith in their mom. Or dad, if that's the case. Parenting issues should be discussed in private, allowing you to work as a team and a united front with your children. Our final section this morning is what dad says, and of course with the all caps, when you get up talking about God. What does God say? What is God's example for us that we can take as fathers and say, that's something I need to do. That's something I need to look to as an example. First off, you are mine. 
always. And that can't be taken from you. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. And 1 Corinthians 6.19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is powerful stuff. God owns you. He created you in his image. You are his and you cannot change that. You belong to God. Your kids are yours. Own them. Let them know it. Let them know every day, every hour that there's nothing they can do that will stop you from loving them. A child with the confidence of belonging to God, that begins with the confidence of knowing they belong to their parents. Bring on the peer pressure. Who cares? I don't need the approval of any human when I know I belong to my father, when I know I belong to my God. When you hurt, it hurts me. This is what dad says. I want to just look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. I'll jump to it. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. When, we, when do we need to be close to our kids? When they have the physical pain of getting shots, broke, breaking bones, being heartbroken from a first crush. When our kids are caught in a sin and they need to go through that path of confession and repentance, they need us to know we're there with them. When they fail a test at school, when they struggle, when they're broken, they need us close to them. My discipline is always for your good. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Dr. Henry Cloud says, All pleasure comes at the price of pain. Your free will lets you decide when you get the pain. The discipline of God is wisdom because it takes a smaller dose of pain early with that discipline, with that trial. So you can have a more full pleasure at the end, afterwards. Final point. Dad says, I will die for you, even as it's your fault. In fact, I did. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And of course, John 3.16, a good verse to wrap up on. For God so loved the world that he gave us his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. When we look at God's example, I can say that parents have sacrificed themselves for their children before, and many more would do it now that haven't had to be in that position. When we have this ultimate example of God, 
it hits us hard in the reality of our sinfulness and our failures. God the Father sent his son to die for us. We don't deserve it. Our rebellious and sinful nature should disqualify us. And yet because we are his, he loves us. There's nothing we can do to stop him from loving us. And he would never have done anything less. We can stand firm today and proud in the knowledge that God loves you. And we can take that example as fathers, as parents, as role models to children and say that that's the kind of love I need to show others. It's the kind of love I need to show those that I'm responsible for. Thank you for your attention this morning. And hopefully you take this message and you can say, man, there's a lot that my dad did for me that I didn't even realize. There's a lot that those fathers, those parents in my life were powerful in their impact and what they had done and the sacrifices that they made. And we can honor them for that today. In a moment, we'll... Uh, We'll have our tradition of honoring our fathers, but I want to go ahead and close in a word of prayer now. Dear Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you, thank you so much for being the father that we all need, for owning us, for letting us know that whatever way we may fall short, that you still love us, you love us more and you want us to, to come closer to you in that time. Help us to take that example for all those who are responsible for his fathers and his role models and all we do. Help us this day as we honor the fathers in our lives that we'll keep you in our heart and mind as well and honor the, the great love that you've shown us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, do we want to bring the fathers up? Yeah, let's do that. We need to get the fathers out of their seats. So if you're a dad, come on up. <laughs>